0: wonderful praise God so let me uh, rewind that and back that up a little bit so we saw that just like Israel you and I can experience those Red Sea moments you and I can experience those moments in life when we are filled with joy, overwhelmed by God's grace, by his miraculous provision, some impossible trial was in front of us and God parted the Red Sea, our enemies were destroyed and we're rejoicing the Lord. But friends, here's the real test of faith. Can you sing that same song in the wilderness? Can we only sing songs of praise when our enemies are being defeated before our eyes? Can we only sing songs of praise when the Red Sea is parted before our eyes? That is going to be the big question for Israel. Can you sing this song of praise in the wilderness? And we're going to get into the text this morning. There's so many different details here that I think are important for us to know. But what I would like to go ahead and do is just make this comparison for us today. Just like there was a wilderness season for Israel, so I believe that in the Christian life such wilderness seasons are common. Now it's true, this might happen more for some of us than for others. And to certain extents than others, that is true. But the basic idea, the basic experience of the wilderness, a wilderness experience for God's people is not uncommon at all. And so while people are first attracted to the Lord because of his power to deliver from Egypt, to take you out of the world, to forgive your sins, to deliver you out and to do wonders among you, which indeed he is. Yet many times Christians are not prepared for the fact that there are going to be wilderness experiences indeed it's sad I've even heard Christian teachers and pastors who have told people that there are no wilderness experiences if you're in Christ you'll never be in a wilderness and if you are in Christ and you're in a wilderness it's because you did something wrong but friends I want to say that that is patently false that just like Israel and the story of the Exodus is a paradigm For the New Testament so just as we are delivered from the the slavery to sin in Egypt and deliverance from the sea of death so too you and I will be thrust into the wilderness of trial in fact Christ himself was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights being tested by the devil without food and water and so if we follow Jesus we who follow the greater Moses, we too are going to find that we are often led through a wilderness. And as many times as people say this, for some reason it still doesn't sink into our minds. Many times we think if we just read the Bible enough, if we just pray enough, if we just go to church enough, if we're just good people, if we just make our business of, of, about you know doing God's will and God's work, we'll avoid a wilderness experience. But friends, that is not the case. I want to share with you one story by a Christian author who felt quite the same way. Even though having been taught for years good Bible teaching that we could have a wilderness trial when it actually hits home it's an entirely different experience listen to this story from author Adrian Warnock he says this quote a year ago at age 46 my life as I knew it was interrupted without warning like countless days before I was commuting home from a normal day in the office Suddenly, I found myself at a train station, struggling to walk or even breathe. An ambulance took me off to the hospital, where I was told I had pneumonia. But then a blood test revealed an abnormality, which resulted in a more sinister diagnosis, a slow-growing form of leukemia. Suddenly, my physical and spiritual life changed. My eyes were suddenly opened to the uncertainty And frailty of life I am a medical doctor and I have also received a lot of sound biblical teaching so you'd think I would have been prepared for suffering when it hit but I was surprised at what a blow it was in retrospect I can see more clearly why first I see that the blessings of my society shaped my expectations Like most who read this article, I live in a historical anomaly when it comes to suffering. I have access to clean water, sanitary food, amazing medical technologies, rapid emergency response systems, and even social welfare support if I'm unable to work. As a result, I am protected from so many dangers that afflicted my ancestors, and I can feel like everything is under my own control. I can see now how much I assumed I'd be spared from suffering second I was unprepared because to some extent I had absorbed a faulty functional theology that many of us share in the Western Church today it isn't the theology I've been taught or thought I even believed but somehow I had not sufficiently challenged the assumption that if I worship God and serve God faithfully he would shield me from serious suffering. This lack of preparedness was exposed by my shock when I received my diagnosis. Let me say that line one more time. I had not sufficiently challenged the assumption that if I worship and serve God faithfully, then he would shield me from serious suffering. Friends, that is, well, in one sense, I think we're never quite prepared for the wilderness experience until it really hits. You know, it's like talking about how to survive in some wilderness scenario in a classroom versus doing it in real life. Uh, I know reality TV has become a very popular thing, and there's actually a pretty cool reality show called Alone. If you've never seen it before, it's actually a show I, I can recommend. It's called Alone, and if you've never heard it before, it's a reality show about surviving all alone in the wilderness, So they'll literally fly helicopter people into Patagonia or someplace in Outer Mongolia or Alaska, and they'll drop them in there. And I think they get like a couple tools, like maybe a pocket knife and uh, a couple of other things, and that's it. And they have to survive, and a couple other people are dropped uh, elsewhere And they have to compete against each other to see how long they survive. And honestly, just that idea of survival and doing what it takes. And what you realize is that many of us modern people who depend on so many different things, so much elaborate things related to our economy and technology, that it hits you. Man, if I were thrown in that situation, I'd last 24 hours, 48 hours, maybe three days If I was lucky, I am so unprepared for that kind of thing. And so it's kind of fun to watch it because you're like, well, maybe I'll be a little more prepared. The same thing I think is true for a lot of people when it comes to the wilderness experiences of life. Many Christians, they are unprepared. They don't really know, they don't have the tools that it takes to not only survive in the wilderness, but actually thrive. And what I want to suggest this morning before we get into all the details of the text is that this is a paradigm for Christians. That this isn't just, oh, well, that happened to Israel, but that won't happen to us. Friends, it's not true. Again, I would say I don't think anyone fully escapes any wilderness experience. Now, I will say as a pastor, I've gotten to walk through life and various stages of life with all kinds of people, hundreds of people, uh, maybe even close to, you know, thousand people where I've actually had conversations um, with people about their life and the struggles that they have. And what I can tell you is this. Pretty much everyone goes through the wilderness experience. Now, it's true, it does vary. Some people, it's not too intense and not for too long. Other people, they're on the other extreme. They're in the wilderness, it seems, maybe the rest of their life. And it's pretty intense most of the way, if not all of the way. Probably most people I know are somewhere in between. They have wilderness experiences, not all the time, but they definitely have them. And and they're not always mild. Sometimes they really believe, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to survive. We're not going to survive this. Maybe some of you are in that place right now as a believer. I'm, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it through this. We're We're not going to, we're going to lose everything. We're going to lose our house. We're going to lose our job. We're going to, you know, I'm... I'm not going to make it. I'm I'm going to die. I'm not going to have much time to live. Maybe we're in that place. And what I want to say to you, you're not in a strange place. That this is something that happens to God's people. And so In this historical narrative in which it is a real wilderness that we're talking about, let me unpack what I mean by a wilderness experience. Because, of course, I'm using it metaphorically. What do I mean by a wilderness experience? This is what I mean. A wilderness experience is a general phenomenon which believers can and do experience in which a situation that appears bleak to the eye and painful to the heart, occurs. It may follow a season of blessing and triumph, one in which God's mighty hand was evidently present in the believer's life. But in the wilderness experience, there are moments, seasons, years, and even decades where God's hand appears to be absent. Indeed, it is often characterized by the fact that the believer cannot possibly comprehend why God would bring them to or allow them to come to such a situation. In the wilderness, the believer may be tempted to believe that God has abandoned them, that they are on their own now, and therefore they may be tempted to revert to an unbelieving mindset. Rather than trust and praise The wilderness is a time when doubt and grumbling may abound. When this happens, absent the ability to see God, the believer in the wilderness will begin to blame and attack others, including family and other believers. An easy target in this regard are the leaders of God's people. If the believer has actually been led into a wilderness, so the reasoning goes, it must be, therefore, the leader's fault. For the erroneous belief often is that since God is good and mighty, then he would never allow his children to experience severe trials in the wilderness. But as we see in today's text, that is patently false. Friends, what we're looking at this morning in Exodus 15, 22 through 27, is our own spiritual journey. We are going to be here. Some of us are here. Some of us have been here. And some of us might not be here now. You will be at some point in the future. So what God wants to say to us now is of the utmost relevance. And so I pray you journey with me now as we go through this text. Let's begin in verse 22. It says, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So the wilderness of Shur is a vast, scarcely populated, and rugged terrain. This is not the kind of place where people go to thrive. You can't go to this place. It's either a place you avoid. It's the kind of place you avoid. Or if you have to, you journey through it as quickly as possible. You you can't live here. It's not a livable place. And notice that God led them there. God led them there. This is not an accident. Notice the text does not say Israel sinned, so God led them into a wilderness. That's not the case. The wilderness experience is not necessarily the result of any sin whatsoever. Friends, you need to hear that. The wilderness experience is not necessarily the result of any sin whatsoever. It can simply be God's plan. The wilderness is a part of the journey. Now it's true, in the story of Israel, Israel's sin, their sinful response, certainly prolonged the wilderness experience. That's true. But that they were in the wilderness, that they encountered a situation where they are without water for three days, was not due to sin, friends. It was simply due to God's leading and God's testing, as we'll see in a moment. I want to remind you once again this happens in the New Testament many of you might think it's strange but what was the first thing that happened to Jesus after he was baptized after Jesus goes down to the water to be baptized by John and the heavens opened up and the Spirit descends like a dove upon the Son of God and a voice from heaven said this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased this this amazing epiphany this revelation from heaven What's the very next thing that happens? It says the Holy Spirit led Jesus, drove him into the wilderness. As you can see, friends, both from Exodus and from the story of Jesus in the New Testament, God will lead us into a desert. So if you have it in your mind that because I'm in a wilderness experience, I must have sinned or done something wrong, I want to encourage you, To pray and reflect that perhaps it has no it has nothing to do with sin whatsoever it may simply be this is a part of God's proving ground for your life so Israel has done no sin the wilderness is a part of the journey it says at the end of verse 22 and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water so we know Israel is complaining and it's really easy, if you're not careful to the details, to start blaming Israel at this point. So they start complaining and grumbling. It's aimed at Moses. It becomes clear that when they're angry and complaining at Moses, uh, they're they're angry at God, but they can see Moses, so they're just slamming him. That's what people tend to do. They're actually mad at God, but they want to attack you instead because you're visible. That's just kind of how life goes many times. But before we say, well, gosh, Israel is praising and singing, and three days later, they're complaining. They were worshiping at church on Sunday, but by the time Wednesday rolls around, they're complaining and wanting to rebel against God. Okay, it's true, it's only been three days, and that certainly grabs our attention. But what is driving the complaining? A lack of water. It says they've journeyed three days in a vast wilderness and they've come across no water friends this is not trivial I don't think it's wrong that Israel is concerned it's like having all these resources all all this money in the bank and then suddenly the income is just gone it's it becomes zero and you're concerned about that. Rightly so. You can be rightly concerned. That is not the problem per se. It is not that Israel sees this as a problem. It is not even necessarily that they feel a sense of fear, which in a sense, there's a degree to which it is good and normal. It's what they do with that. Do we allow our fear to be transformed by faith? Or do we allow our fear to turn into doubt? That is more the issue for Israel. But notice, if the trial is intense enough, three days is all it takes. We could be singing God's praises on a Sunday morning, but by the time Wednesday hits, you know, we're, we're freaking out or, or whatever it is. So I just wanna point out, this is not trivial. This is not, oh, look at Israel, they're always complaining and whining about something. Friends, I think we need to see human nature in this story. We need to see the fact that you and I, given an intense enough trial, we could very much be like Israel, and we need to acknowledge that. Verse 23, now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. Now, I would actually say this is a second trial. This is a second trial. It's related to the first, but I think it's an additional trial. So the first trial is we have no water. We're, we're, we're gonna die. And they're journeying, and God leads them to a place of water. So now they get their hopes up. Have you ever had a situation like that? You're in this horrible situation, things are going really bad. You were, you know, maybe told you were you're really sick. Um, you're oh, you know, this financial situation looks really bad. Suddenly the IRS sends you says you owe all this kind of money and all this stuff. And then you see some hope and you're like, God came through. Oh, yes. And you and you start to praise and then you realize that the water is bitter. You realize that after you've gotten your hopes up thinking God has delivered you, it just all comes crashing back down. And I can kind of see that as as a second trial, because some of us, our faith is enough to survive the three days without the water. For some of us, maybe in our journeys and our walks with the Lord, even the three days without water is enough. We're, we've just we're losing our faith. We're 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 grumbling against the Lord. We're wanting to rebel. But some of us, by the grace of God, we've been strengthened in our faith, and we've become mature enough in our faith that the three days. Okay, we're concerned, but I'm with you, Lord. I know. I still know you're good. Three days without water. That's not good, but you're good. I'm with you. Ah, oh, see, Lord, I knew trusting in you would pay off. Look at this water before us. Hmm it's bitter it's oh, this is not gonna save. we can't drink it so it's almost like a second trial for Israel many trials in our lives are are not simple they're not like oh it's all solved in a day or or it's it's either all bad or all good many trials that I've experienced personally in life are up and down up and down just this roller coaster of emotion and you get bad reports and good reports and bad reports and good reports and things you, you thought this is what it was and you know your eyes it looks like water and but then when you get there no it's bitter I see this as a second trial for Israel and I think it's something that we need to have compassion upon Israel and upon anyone who is in a situation like that because it's something that can just be devastating to our hope verse 24 And it says, and the people complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now that word complained in Hebrew is the word loon. Loon is used 14 times as a verb and all of them, with the exception of two times, once in Joshua, once in Psalms, all of them are in the wilderness narrative. All of them in the wilderness narrative, the wilderness narrative tests us in a way the promised land won't we know that when Israel gets there they get their home they, they build their elaborate homes and the temple and the palace and have their city walls and it's not like there's no problems there but it's not the same as the wilderness so the wilderness is a very unique experience and this word it's important we understand what it means Um, It's it's more than just grumbling or murmuring or complaining, although it's certainly that. That's what they're doing. But it's this idea of murmuring and complaining with a desire to rebel. It's murmuring and complaining with a desire to rebel. In other words, it's the kind of complaining and murmuring that is actually born of unbelief. It's not a lament. It's not a, a cry of faith. Like many of the Psalms are, Oh Lord, where are you? I'm drowning in my tears. My enemies have surrounded me. That's not complaining or grumbling. Complaining and grumbling, the word loon, is the idea of rebellion. That our speech, it's, it's a turning away from God. It's being angry at God. It's even the desire is to usurp usurp relationships as we're gonna see with Israel the idea is they actually complained against who they complained against Moses and as we're going to see later that's exactly what they do because before you see a rebellion in action what do you usually see a rebellion in speech that's what's so concerning about many people right now in you know the political and social world in America People are, you know, when you start talking a certain way, we value free speech, as we rightly should. But again, we also have to pay attention to the kinds of things people are saying. Because many times when people intend to rebel and and to do certain things, they will voice it out, but the intention is actually to do something. So again, this idea of complaining, loon, it's, it's rebellious in nature. And that's what you need to know. Because sometimes well-meaning Christians have wrongly said that if you simply cry out to God, if you say, God, why are you doing this? Oh, Lord, that that's sin. I don't think that's true. And my answer with that would be to look at the Psalms. And the Psalms are full of what we call laments. Most of the Psalms are actually laments. And we are invited to read the Psalms, we are invited to sing the Psalms, we are invited to make the Psalms the prayers of our own hearts. We are invited to do likewise. So I don't think that complaining is this idea of of verbalizing, vocalizing our plight, our pain, our situation, our, our lack of understanding. I think we're invited to do this before God, and I believe it's actually a good thing to do that is why it is in the Bible it is why we're invited to do it in worship you can take your fears and your doubts and your pain and you can actually turn it into worship what a beautiful hope that is to know that you don't have to fix your fear fix your pain and fix your doubt in order to praise God but rather you can bring all those things to God in praise and it becomes an act of worship what you and I need to be careful of is rebellion where we're beginning to rebel against God and one of the normal ways that begins is we begin rebelling against people uh, husbands and wives can begin turning against each other I've heard reports again not just our, our church but uh, many churches uh, and just people in general where there's a lot of marriages that are on the verge of divorce going through divorce husbands and wives because of all the stress and all the anxiety of of the economy and and not being able to go places and and husbands and wives are they're blaming each other and it's like obviously you didn't cause this no husband or wife caused everything to go on but it's just there's something in us that wants to project all of our anger and frustration out on somebody else And we see Israel do that time and time again, who they're really rebelling against is God. And it's demonstrated through rebelling against the visible authorities that they have in front of them. And notice what their complaint is. What shall we drink? I think that's very interesting because if you remember, Jesus addressed this very thing in Matthew 6. And I think when you read this passage in Matthew 6, I think we're invited to remember Israel. When Jesus says, do not say, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? I believe he's calling on Christians. He's calling on his followers to pass the wilderness test. To not go wrong where Israel did, to not grumble and complain and turn against God, but rather to come to the Lord. You may remember this verse, and if you don't know it, I highly recommend you writing it down. Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34. Jesus said, therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So notice Jesus addresses that very question. What shall we drink? And what we're invited to do is pray that prayer, Lord, give us this day our daily bread that is built into the Lord's prayer. But notice what the first request of the Lord's prayer is. It's not give us this day our daily bread. Give us our cup of water. It is Father, glorify your name. It is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So this question is a natural question but it's done through a heart of unbelief, through a heart of rebellion. Verse 25, it says, So he, that is Moses, cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them, and there he tested them. So why does God have Israel going through the wilderness? I said it's not because they are in sin, although they are starting to sin now, but that's not why they're in the wilderness. Why are we in the wilderness? It's not necessarily because of sin. So why are we? Why is Israel in the wilderness? Friends, the answer is here at the end of verse 25. It says, and there he tested them. The reason For the wilderness, the ultimate reason, God's purpose in the wilderness, is to test our faith. Now, this word test is the Hebrew word nasah. And this is the first time the word nasah has been used since Genesis 22. What happened in Genesis 22? Genesis 22 is the paradigm of faith. It is the story of the father of faith, Abraham, being called to offer his only son, Isaac, the son of promise, the son God promised him, the son in whom God promised to make all the blessings, the the seed of the woman coming through the line of promise, and Abraham is called to offer him up. And Genesis 22 said, and God tested Abraham, Nassah, you do not see that word again. Until here, Exodus 15, there's something we are being told by the use of this word. We are called to look back at Genesis 22 and we see what is happening there. Ultimately, what was the purpose? Was the purpose God didn't know? What Abraham would do, is that what it was for? God didn't know. God didn't know if Abraham would pass the test. He's like, oh, I had no idea if you would be faithful or not. Glad I, had, I tested you, because now I know what I wouldn't have known otherwise. Friends, that is not what the Bible teaches about God. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. When God asks a question, it is not because he wants to know something. It's because he wants you to know something. When God asks Adam in the garden after their sin, Adam, where are you? He's not asking because God wants to know where Adam is. God wants Adam to know if he knows where he is. The question is for him. So God tests Abraham. And in this testing, it's this idea of proving or refining. In other words, it's not merely did you have all this faith before. But rather, there is a transformation of the very faith itself through the testing process. In other words, while it's true to say Abraham had faith already, we know he did. But through this act, through this wilderness experience, and what a wilderness experience is it for a parent to have to offer up their child and say, here, take my child. My child is yours. I give up my child to you. That is no easy thing for any parent to do, ever. That is a wilderness experience. For all those who have children, you know exactly what I mean. Some of you have been tested in ways more than others, but the heart of a parent, the parent that loves their child, a Christian parent who who doesn't only have natural affection, which even a non-believer can have for a child. We have the Spirit of God. We know that parenting is more than just biological nurturing. It's spiritual nurturing. And to have to offer up your child. I know many parents have have had little children born prematurely. They weigh one pound and and helplessly they're having to give up their child to God as their child is hooked up to all kinds of tubes and, and they can't even touch them or put their hands on them. And they're just praying to God, Lord, Lord, spare my child, but, but your will be done. Parents that maybe you don't have anything as radical as that, but what happens when your child turns 18? You raised them in the Lord, but they hit 18, 19, 20, 21. They move out, and then they start telling you the stuff they're doing, and it's not what you raised them to do, and, and you're up all night going, oh gosh, are they alive? Did they make it back from that trip? Oh my gosh, they're, they're marrying that person? That person's a bad person. What's going on? Parents are going through a wilderness experience having to offer their children before God. And what I want to say, friends, is while our eyes are preoccupied with the instrument of the trial, the wilderness, God wants us to be preoccupied with him, that he has a purpose, that our faith that existed before is being tested and refined, that God desires for our faith to grow through this trial, that it be tested, that it be purified, that it would grow. Yes, God has a purpose for the wilderness. God has a purpose for Israel. He says, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what he says is right. Verse 26. Give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you, which I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. What does God require of us in the desert? Notice that he reveals it in verse 26. He requires obedience. Obey me in the wilderness. Again, friends, like I said many times, when we're in the wilderness, we're preoccupied with the details. We're preoccupied with the instrument, what the, the wilderness itself. But what Jesus told us is seek first the kingdom of God. Don't be preoccupied with what am I going to eat, what am I going to drink, what I'm going to wear. Because that's what everyone else is doing. That's what pagans do. That is what people who have no faith do. But God has called us not to be ignorant of these things. Certainly to direct these things, to deal with them as best we can, to lift them up to God in prayer. But our eyes are to be focused upon obeying the Lord seek the Lord worship the Lord obey the Lord be faithful in this season it is a test of your faith and again I've never seen anything more revealing of human nature than the wilderness experience the true measure of a godly man or a godly woman is not how they behave on the mountaintop it's how they live in the wilderness that is where true godliness is revealed people that preach oh I'm walking with God I I love Jesus but everything is easy. You've got an easy life. You got no problems. You got no physical health issues. You've got all the money in the world. You never worry about paying your bills or or what you know if you're gonna have enough for tomorrow. Um, your family they're all just sweet, law-abiding citizens. And you're like, oh, well, that's that's great. I'm happy for you. But that's easy. And it's easy to say you you're godly and you follow Jesus when you have all that. But what happens when it's taken? what happens when you're in the wilderness that is the real test of godly character and what we're called to do in the wilderness is to obey now something that kind of jumps out and it's a little interesting notice what the Lord says at the end of verse 26 now if you do this if you keep all these things then I will put none of the diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians it's kind of like wait what what did you say you know, like, then you won't do it? You you mean there's a chance you might? Um, I think sometimes God's people think that because I'm a Christian, God won't discipline me. He won't chasten me. Um, That's not the message you get from the Bible, neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. He tells Israel, look, you might think because I chose you and because I love you and I set my, my love upon you and I'm bringing you out of Egypt, you might think that you can just get away with whatever you want because you're not Egypt and let me just correct you on that assumption Israel I love you and you are my people but because I love you you will not behave like the Egyptians and by the way if you do then you will experience some of the things you saw me do to the Egyptians because I will not let you be like them just like a good parent disciplines their child not because they don't love them but because they do and they know the neighbor kid the neighborhood kid who's always out alone unsupervised mom and dad never there don't care doing all kinds of things getting in all kinds of trouble and the kid is jealous. your kid is jealous Thinking, man I wish I had all that freedom but that's not love a child with zero supervision is not being loved it's truly love when you supervise and you discipline your child and you love them that is love and just as God loves us, just as a parent loves their children, so God loves us, that he will discipline us. And so notice he warns Israel. Don't say to yourself, well, we are Israelites. We are God's chosen people. Oh, I'm a Christian. I I follow Jesus. Therefore, I can live any way I want. I can start setting my hope on things of this world. I can start trusting in earthly riches, and God just won't do anything about it. Friends, that's not true. Because God loves you, he will discipline you. He will allow us to go through difficult trials in order to correct if we're wrong and even if it's not sin that brought us into the wilderness to test and refine our faith. Lastly, verse 27. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 wells of water and 70 palm trees, and so they camped there by the waters. So notice again that sometimes... Because God leads us into a wilderness, you can start to get the feeling like, gosh, does, does God, does he even love me? Does, is he just all harsh? Is, is that what he is? He's just a God of correction, but not a God of blessing or grace? Well, look what we see here in verse 27. After this test, which God led Israel in the wilderness to do, to test them, to show them what was in their own heart, to change them, to cause them to trust in him, notice that after this, first of all, notice grace. While it's true later in the Exodus story, later in the wilderness wanderings. God will punish Israel. He will. But notice here, no punishment. He did not punish them here. God is gracious. His first action towards people is not punishment. He doesn't want to have to punish us. He doesn't want to have to punish anyone. He would rather simply speak, correct, and have us repent. That would always be God's preferred mode of correction. Now, Israel, if they refuse later, yes, we're going to see it. But notice in this text, grace. God did not punish them. He simply corrected them verbally and hoped that they would repent. And we see here in verse 27 that God still does want to bless his people. We see they are led to a place called Elim that has 12 Springs of water how many tribes of Israel are there 12 tribes so there's a spring of water for every tribe how many palm trees are there 70 how many nations are in the table of nations in Genesis 10 70 how many elders is Moses gonna ordain and 70 how many disciples does Jesus send out in the Gospels 70 so again we see this idea of abundant provision God does want to bless. He he does want to give us those sweet times in life. But life is not all Elim. Life is not all 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Sometimes the Christian life will be Mara. We will come to a season in life in which there's no water for a time. And even when we come to the water, we find that the water is bitter to drink. But what we see in the story is that God is with Israel and that he is able even to make the bitter waters sweet. That God has a plan for the wilderness, friends. He is testing us, refining us, because faith is more precious to God than it is to us. Remember that. As non-Christians, we don't value what God values. As a Christian, you begin to value what God values, but that doesn't mean your priorities are right. And I'm convinced for most of us, if not all of us, we do not value faith as much as God does. We might value faith, but comfort, ease, awareness of knowledge of the future, things like that, we prefer that over faith. God prefers faith over all of that. God loves faith. God's desire is to produce faith in us. So what can we learn? from this wilderness experience we can learn three things so the wilderness experience threatens our existence in three ways what three ways does our is our existence threatened in the wilderness number one our physical existence can be threatened in the wilderness as I said lacking water for three days is no trivial thing in the middle of a desert And so some of us could be going through a physical wilderness at this time you could be having pains and aches that that make life difficult it makes functioning it makes sleeping it makes thinking it makes driving or moving or traveling or anything difficult if not even impossible some of you, maybe it's, it's not pain so much yet, but you've been told you've got something very, very major that you've got to deal with. So the, wilder can, uh, the wilderness experience can be an affliction physically, and we actually see that here with Israel. Secondly, the wilderness can afflict our relationships. We see that the relationship between God and Israel, and ultimately Israel and Moses, is affected. You'll notice when under stress, we will tend to take it out on other people. See if this is so. If you're a husband or wife or, or if you're a parent or, or to your parents or brothers or sisters or, or people in the church or church leaders or whoever it is, that when we're in a wilderness, when we're under this stress and anxiety and our, our existence is being threatened, isn't it easy to just begin taking it out on other people? we taking it we're taking it out on them and they might not even have anything to do with it it's possible they don't have anything to do with it or even if they do have something to do with it because in a real sense Moses did lead Israel to this place but who was Moses following god Moses was following God this idea that if if a if a leader is is just leading rightly well then we'll never go to a a wilderness we'll never end up at Mara but we see that's not true Moses is following God and following Moses following God leads them through the wilderness and so we can find that we have relational strains it can be betrayal Uh, some people experience this in marriage a a husband or wife has betrayed them it can happen with uh, parents and their and their children their adult children uh, that they betrayed them they they're estranged from them Um, it can be with people in the church somebody hurt your feelings so bad in a church you just you're so you don't even want to go to church I don't want anything to do with church I'm I'm just out of here I'm leaving and it can be a relational threatening to your existence and lastly the wilderness can threaten our spiritual existence i noted that it doesn't take much faith to follow god out of egypt does it it doesn't take much faith god is initiating god is attacking your enemies they're clearly kind of the bad guys there's there's not a lot of talk about israel having sin god's not really dealing with it there it's hinted Because they too had to apply the blood of the lamb. And without the blood of the lamb over the doors, uh, the angel of death wouldn't have passed over them. A little detail sometimes we miss. But it's it's not expounded on there. So Israel can easily go, hey, they're the bad guys. And since Egypt's the bad guys, I must be a good guy. And what we actually see is it doesn't take much faith to follow God out of Egypt. It takes a lot of faith to follow God through Egypt. The wilderness. So many who follow God out of Egypt often do not stay faithful to him in the wilderness. So what is God's purpose for the desert experiences and what is the key to survival? So let me answer those two questions in closing. Number one, the answer is what is God's purpose for the desert experiences and it is that your faith be tested and purified. Write that down. What is the purpose of my desert experience? That your faith be tested and purified. Let me quote to you one of my favorite verses, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, listen to this, friends, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith So again, friends, we have to understand what it is for. If your first thought is, because I'm in a wilderness, I must have sinned. Remember that the wilderness is a part of God's training ground. It is where faith is formed. Faith actually blossoms in the desert. Genuine saving faith can be formed in the desert. And so focus on trusting in the Lord. Allow him to refine that faith. It will reveal our impurities. We'll see those things in us where, wow, I thought I trusted God with this when I was in the fertile valley. But now that I'm in the wilderness, I see that that's an area of my life where I need to trust even more in the Lord. And what is the key to survival? Survival. The key to survival is simply looking to Jesus, who has led the way out of the wilderness for us. As we look back to Jesus, we remember that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was tested 40 days and 40 nights by Satan. And unlike Israel, who sinned in the wilderness, Jesus sinned not. He remained Perfect, And so he who knows who went through the wilderness successfully is the one you and I are told to follow. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11 says this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. So if you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness... Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it is so important that we understand the purpose is that our faith is tested and refined. And what is our key to survival? It is looking to Jesus The prophet greater than Moses, who successfully defeated sin and death, resisted all the temptations of the enemy in the wilderness. Just as Moses in this story cast a tree upon the waters and the bitter became sweet. So Jesus was casted upon a tree so that the bitterness of sin and death would be changed into the sweetness of grace and life. And it is to him I commend you all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning and we thank you and praise you that you love us enough to not leave us where we are. But rather, to each one of us, you have a plan and a purpose. There is a journey that is set before us. And Lord, we are so grateful for delivering us out of slavery to sin, slavery to Egypt. Lord, we know that the Bible says that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we, like Israel, were in Egypt at one time. And if we have believed in Jesus for salvation and trusted in him, then we have been delivered out of Egypt. But it is true, Lord, that you have not simply saved us from Egypt, but you have saved us for yourself. You have a high and holy calling on each one of us, and a part of that calling will often be, at times, a wilderness experience. Lord, we know that this is no strange thing to the people of God. I know that some of my brothers and sisters right now, as I speak, who are going through a tremendous wilderness experience, Some people may assume that because they are not going through a difficult time and times are easy and pleasant, that all of their brothers and sisters must also be going through the same. But Lord, if we talk with one another, if we listen to one another, if we pray for one another, we will know that there are men and women in our fellowship, men and women, brothers and sisters in the church that are hurting deeply, that are experiencing a wilderness experience. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us who might not be in a wilderness experience at this moment, that they would be compassionate, that they would not be judgmental about their predicament of their brothers and sisters, but they would have a compassionate and sympathetic ear, that they would listen to what they are saying, that they would allow the Word of God to transform their thinking so that they can understand that God does have a plan and a purpose for the wilderness. Lord, I pray for those of us that are in the wilderness right now as I speak. Lord, we pray that this faith that Peter spoke of, that is more precious than gold, would be formed in us. Lord, I pray we would learn to value faith as much as you do. Lord, I know that many of us, it is so easy, so natural, to cling to comfort more than faith. We would rather have comfort than faith. But Lord, sometimes you will call us, to give up or indeed comfort will be taken from us in order that we might place more faith in Christ. And so if that is us this morning, Lord, we just pray that by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, you would create that faith in us. Give us the faith to believe. Give us the faith to believe that if the tree is cast upon the bitter waters, we can drink the sweet. And so, Lord, I just pray your cross right now would touch the bitterness of our lives. I pray that the gospel would be sweet news to our hearts, that you would replenish and satisfy your people, and that they would know that the end of the story is Elim. At the end of the story, there are springs of water. There are palm trees, Lord. We are promised heaven, resurrection, new earth. That is the end of the story. And so, Lord, we pray that the end you have revealed for all of us would shape our present experience. Lord, we thank you so much that you are the Lord of the wilderness, that Christ is the greater prophet than Moses, who is able to lead us and he is with us and he is for us and he will never lead us nor forsake us. I just pray now for a blessing on your people and that you would use each and every one of us to bring glory and honor to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen all right friends now for uh, as a part of our worship for those that would like to give financially to the Lord acknowledging that he is Jehovah Jireh that he is the God who sees and provides there are various opportunities for you to be able to give back to the Lord and continue to support the work of the ministry and the works of the ministry that we in turn support as a church and so there's a couple of ways you can do that The first way you can do that is to go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and there's a giving tab at the top, and you can click on that, and you're able to use your debit card or credit card in order to give. Again, let me say this, I say this every week, and I think it's important, again, The reason you are doing this is worshiping the Lord. That's the number one thing. It is not about just meeting practical needs, paying bills, uh, helping to support people that we're helping to support. Uh, That's secondary. It is worshiping the Lord. That's number one. And what I also want to say is this is between you and the Lord. So what I would say to everyone is you go before the Lord in your heart, in prayer, and say, Lord, what would you have me give back to you? And whatever the Lord shows you, that is what you give. For those of you, again, that have been affected financially by what's going on, if you've lost your job, if you've taken a a massive pay cut, again, don't feel guilty that you are not able to do what you were doing before. God doesn't hold us accountable for what we don't have but for what we do have so I just want to encourage you don't feel guilty at all again we give out of joy not out of guilt so go to the Lord on that one for those of you that join us and you're you're a member of another local church but you are blessed by the image church services we're so thankful for you as a matter of practical priority what we would say is first of all make sure you give to your local church that you attend first and foremost we wouldn't want to take away from that If after doing that, you still are able to bless and support the work of Image Church and you're grateful for it, then again, we are incredibly humbled by that and would appreciate that. Again, those of you that don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are not asking for a penny from you. So please do not feel uh, obligated to give anything, and we would just encourage you to continue uh, to receive and benefit from the ministry of Image Church. Now, friends, we have quite a few things going on throughout the week. We do six different prayer meetings uh, throughout the week. Uh, We have multiple Bible studies. We have a midweek Bible study. Uh, We have men's and women's meetings, and then we'll have some special uh, discussions where we'll be discussing uh, current issues and just how we can face them faithfully as Christians and members of image church and so encourage you to be a part of that. If you would like to receive our weekly email newsletter, just send me an email at information at imagechurchoc.com. That's information at image dot com and just let us know that you'd like to be Put on the newsletter there. Again, those of you that are just checking out our couple of main services, remember we're continuing our study through the Book of Galatians on Wednesday nights. So Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, we're going through the Book of Galatians and so I highly encourage you to join us all for that. If you have any questions about today's Bible study, about the text itself, about Christian doctrine, uh, application of this morning's message, I would be more than happy to discuss that with you or even pray for you. So feel free once again to use that email, information at imagechurchoc.com. If you have any prayer requests, please feel free. You can send them through the messenger feature of our Facebook page or once again, send them to that email page. With that said, everyone, let me just end with this prayer of blessing may the grace and truth of our lord jesus christ and the love of god and the fellowship of the holy spirit be with you all this week may the lord bless you may the lord keep you may he cause his face to shine upon you may he be gracious and merciful may he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this morning. If this service was a blessing to you, I would encourage you to go ahead and like our post and share it. If you don't have a Facebook account, you can copy the link and you can email that or text that to someone. Help us continue to get the word out by getting the word of God out to as many people as we can. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a beautiful Sunday afternoon.